Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russia-Ukraine War Report podcast, and today is February the 19th, 2024. It's been 3,675 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27, 2014, and one year and 360 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. Today's podcast looks at events that happened over the weekend and Monday morning. During the podcast you will find the Russia-Ukraine war map helpful to visualize the areas discussed. A link is in the podcast description. There are significant map updates today. The Russia-Ukraine war report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Morning Reports, Operational Commands North, South and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian male bloggers and social media channels with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission – the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with the daily assessment. 1. Our February the 15th assessment that Ukrainian forces had started a retrograde operation in the western part of Avdiivka was accurate with Ukrainian troops completing their withdrawal on February the 17th. 2. Our October the 10th assessment that Russia was all in to capture Avdiivka, regardless of the cost, was accurate. 3. Our 2022 assessment that Russia would have to dedicate a force of at least 50,000 troops and maintain sustained attacks for up to six months to push Ukrainian forces out of Avdiivka was accurate. 4. In our assessment, the conventional wisdom that the new commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Ukraine, Colonel General Alexander Sirsky, would hold the defense of Avdiivka regardless of cost, was unproductive and inaccurate. 5. The acute shortage of ammunition and air defense missiles directly impacted the battlefield and contributed to Ukraine's withdrawal from Avdiivka. 6. In the near term, it is unlikely Russia can convert its operational success in Avdiivka into further gains due to the need to establish military control of captured territory, extend and secure new ground lines of communication and the unfavorable terrain west of the settlement. 7. It is unlikely that Russia will achieve its main operational goal of capturing the remaining areas of the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts and the areas east of the Oskil River in northern Kharkiv oblast by March the 17th. 8. Bezdorizhia is slowing the operational tempo due to poor tractability, which will further restrain Russian advances west of Avdiivka. 9. The United States has ended financial and military aid to Ukraine unless there is an unforeseen event that changes congressional leadership before the 2024 elections. 10. The lack of media attention and the ending of U.S. military aid has encouraged the Kremlin to be more transparent when committing grave breaches of the General Convention due to the lack of a meaningful response from international organizations. 11. Russian forces continue their offensive to capture Chasivyar west of Bakhmut. 12. 
Combat that closely resembles World War I trench warfare versus 21st century combined arms maneuver warfare will continue for the foreseeable future. 13. We maintain that while the possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains low, the condition is more serious than what the International Atomic Energy Agency is reporting. We begin today's war report in Kharkiv and Luhansk oblasts in the Kremina area of Operation Oreo. Fighting continued east of Terny, Yampolivka and Torske. There was no change in the situation. To the southeast, the Russian Ministry of Defense, or Armored, maintained tradition and reported that Ukrainian forces were on the offensive near Dubrova. In the Lysychanskyo, Russian and Ukrainian sources reported continued fighting in the area of Bilohorivka, with no change in the situation. On February 17, Ukraine reported air defenses shot down three Su-34s, one Su-35 and another Su-34 multi-role fighter on February 18. Russian source fighter bomber vehemently denied the reports. Near occupied Antracit, Luhansk Oblast, residents recorded the crash of a Russian Su-34 that had been hit by anti-aircraft fire. In our assessment, it was likely hit by a Patriot battery due to the distance from the line of conflict. At the time of recording, our analysts could not verify the status of the other four aircraft. Next, let's talk about the Donbass, starting in northeastern Donetsk Oblast. In the Solidario, Russian forces attempted to advance in the direction of Vimka from Bilohorivka, that's the one in Donetsk Oblast. The attack was partially successful. Northeast of Vesele, a drone operator recorded Russian troops executing two wounded Ukrainian soldiers. I'll go into more detail in our war crimes and human rights section. In the Bakhmutyo, Russian forces tried to advance deeper into Bogdanivka without success. Heavy fighting continued east of Ivanivske with no change in the situation. In the Klishivkaio, fighting continued northwest, north and east of Klishivka and east of Andreevka. In southwestern Donetsk Oblast, I have updates to the mission objectives for both combatants. The Russian objectives. By March the 13th, capture the remainder of the Donetsk Oblast and terrorize Ukrainian civilians. The Ukrainian objectives Establish new defensive lines west of Avdivka, hold and harden existing defensive lines on the north and south flank, maximize Russian casualties and preserve personnel, and protect civilian lives. On the morning of February the 17th, Ukrainian CIC Colonel General Sirsky announced he had given the order to withdraw from Avdivka. In order to avoid encirclement and preserve the lives and health of servicemen, I decided to withdraw our units from the city and move to defense on more favorable lines. Our soldiers honorably fulfilled their military duty, did everything possible to destroy the best Russian military units, and inflicted significant losses on the enemy in manpower and equipment. We are taking measures to stabilize the situation and maintain our positions. The life of military personnel is the highest value. Unquote. The city apparently isn't under full military control, with Russian forces releasing a video claiming to show two Ukrainian soldiers captured at the Avdivka coke plant. Based on the weather conditions, the video is from February the 18th. We are linking to the video because, in our assessment, these POWs are in grave danger. 
There will be more information in the War Crimes and Human Rights section. You can find all the videos and pictures I talk about in our situation report. There is more information in the podcast description. Russian forces attempted to continue their advance west of the coke plant in the direction of Lastochkine, but were met with furious resistance from Ukrainian troops. Russian sources reported that the ferocity of the defense was unexpected and included artillery strikes and the use of DPICM, better known as cluster munitions. Moving to assessment, Russian forces will have to consolidate their gains and establish new logistics and the terrain west of Avdiivka is unfavorable for new advances. It is a flat, open step, which favors drone warfare. In our assessment, it is more likely Russia will concentrate its forces in a new AO. As to why Avdiivka fell, in May 2022 we assessed the key to Avdiivka was the Krasnohorivka plateau on the north flank. Ukraine was able to use the plateau as a firebase and for surveillance, preventing Russian advances toward the settlement. Additionally, the terrain made it a natural fortress. When Russia captured Krasnohorivka last year, it could not establish firebases there, and Ukraine held fire control on the ground lines of communication, GLOX, that's a supply line, right up to the fall of Avdivka. Shortages of air defense missiles and manpads enabled Russia to establish air supremacy, bombing the city 40 to 60 times a day. Once Russia committed a force of 50,000 in October, it was clear to our team that the Kremlin was all in. Critical ammunition shortages, coupled with the loss of the high ground, made continued defense untenable. We had repeatedly assessed it would take at least 50,000 Russian troops and approximately six months of sustained attacks to capture the settlement. The siege lasted 134 days, approximately four and a half months. Almost a year ago, our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, convicted Russian criminal, failed mobic and special guest of the Russian Federal Penitentiary Service, Igor Strelkov-Girkin, wrote about the significance of Avdivka. We think it's aged well. Quote, if it falls, the enemy will have to leave a lot of other settlements to avoid being surrounded, and accordingly, the front line will move 10 to 15 kilometers away from Donetsk. But I emphasize that even if Avdiivka falls, it will be a purely tactical success, which in general does not give anything to end the war. Southwest of occupied Avdiivka, fighting continued near Pervomaiske and east of Nevelske with no change in the situation. In the Marinka AO, Russian forces continued their attacks on the eastern edge of Georgievka and the southern edge of Marienka toward Pobeda. None of the attempts to advance were successful. In the Vogledar AO, the situation in eastern Novomikhailivka remains difficult. Russian troops continue to reach the edges of the settlement, but can't consolidate their gains. In the Staromlinivka AO, Ukrainian source Deep State reported that Russian troops were active near Novodonetska. In Zaporizhia Oblast, Russian forces launched significant attacks on the Orikhiv AO. Russian forces attacked west and southwest of Robotene. Claims by Russian mail blogger to Majors that Russian troops partially occupy the village is false and the Russian attempt to advance from the west failed. BMP-1 infantry fighting vehicles, or IFVs, and Cold War-era T-55 medium-duty tanks were used in the assaults. 
Russian forces attempted a daytime advance north of Kopani in fair weather, suffered heavy losses due to drone strikes, including IFVs, and withdrew. The International Atomic Energy Agency released an update about the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, also known as the NPP. On-site inspectors were permitted to observe ongoing training of new staff. Rosatom said that new trainees would be authorized to work on all six reactors. Previously, there was a group trained for control rooms 1 through 4 and a second group for 5 and 6. Rostechnadzor, the Russian nuclear regulator, told the IAEA that reactors in cold shutdown would require three operators and in hot shutdown will require four. Staffing levels could only be verified in units 2, 3 and 4. Russian occupiers repeated that the NPP has, quote, enough certified personnel at the plant and that all essential positions are fully filled, unquote. IAEA Secretary-General Rafael Grossi issued conflicting information on staffing, saying, quote, The number of staff has more than halved over the past two years, reversing a February the 6th claim that the plant was half-staffed. On January the 25th, he reported that the NPP was at 39% staffing level compared to January 2022. Russian occupiers escorted two of the IAEA inspectors to Enerhodar, claiming four drones had attacked the city. The team observed, quote, significant damage to the facade of the city hall building, including some damaged windows, unquote. However, they weren't shown any drone debris and could not determine if the damage was from an earlier attack. They were also taken to a school with a single broken window, with no evidence of drone debris. Russian occupiers claimed the site had been cleaned before their arrival. Inspectors find an oil leak on a cooling pump of Reactor 2 that circulates coolant in the spent fuel storage cooling pond. They also found a water link on another pump in the same system. There are now reported leaks in four of the six reactor systems at ZNPP. Reactor 4 remains in hot shutdown. Briefly about Moldova, the border police found the wreckage of a second Iranian-sourced Shahid-136 one-way drone near the village of Etulia. In our assessment, the debris is likely from last week's attack, with the UAVs entering Moldovan airspace from the north to target the Ukrainian port of Reni. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Here is my theater-wide update. Someone changed the sign. It's been zero days since a Russian government official threatened nuclear war. The deputy chairman of the Security Council of the Russian Federation, Dmitry Medvedev, said that if Russia is forced to return to its 1991 borders, Moscow will nuke everyone. Quote, in Kyiv, Berlin, London and Washington. For all other beautiful historical sites, which have long been included in our nuclear triads attack goals, Will we have enough guts for this if a thousand-year-old country, our great homeland, is on the verge of extinction 
and the sacrifices made by the Russian people over the centuries are in vain? The answer is obvious. Unquote. If this makes you nervous, find someone from Generation X. They have years of experience ignoring these kinds of threats from Russia. On February the 7th, Russia used a KH-69 cruise missile for the first time. Russia claims the new cruise missile was purpose-built for the Su-57, has a stealth design, a range of 290 km, and carries a 310 kg conventional warhead. Displayed at the Dubai Air Show for the first time in 2023, the exposed rivets and ill-fitting service panels do not support the claim that it is stealthy. We have a picture of one in the situation report. Russia claims it is accurate to within 5 meters. The KH-69 can also be launched from the Su-30, 34, 35, MiG-35S and MiG-29K. If you are wondering, yes, there is a MiG-35S. Six of them, plus two hand-built test aircraft. It is a heavily upgraded MiG-29. The documentary 20 Days in Mariupol won the BAFTA Award for Best Documentary Film. The United States Department of Justice is transferring $500,000 in confiscated Russian profits to Estonia. The funds are the profits from an illegal scheme to ship sanctioned goods to Russia and are part of the conviction agreement. The money will be used to repair Ukraine's energy infrastructure. German news source Bild reported that the United States company the Ahmed Group overcharged the Bundestag by 300% for infantry mobility vehicles, or IMVs, that are incapable of frontline duty. The BAT UMG can only stop small arms fire and offers no protection from landmines, mortars, one-way drones or shrapnel. According to the manufacturer, the vehicle is built to protect occupants from 6-kilogram anti-tank mines under any wheel or the center of the vehicle. The IMV is built on a Ford F550 4x4 chassis, which costs under $70,000. The normal build-out is $215,000, but the Ahmed Group charged $650,000 per vehicle. Ukraine has taken delivery of 48 of the 66 bad UMGs and can't use them. The Prime Minister of Denmark, Mette Frederiksen, made headlines after saying that the country would be giving all available artillery pieces and ammunition to Ukraine. Denmark has 19 Caesar 155mm self-propelled guns and already pledged their entire inventory to Ukraine in January 2023. France announced it would provide Ukraine with its latest one-way drones for field testing. The president of the Czech Republic, Petr Pavel, said that he has located a source for 500,155mm and 300,122mm artillery rounds that could be in Ukraine within weeks. The issue is the shells aren't from a European manufacturer, and France, Greece and Cyprus are blocking part funds that could be used to buy them. The arrival of 800,000 artillery shells, with the additional 675,000 committed by the European Union through the rest of 2024, is enough to stabilize Ukraine's artillery capabilities.
President Vlad the Impaler Putin continues his purge, eliminating what he believed was the biggest threat to his power since Evgeny Prigozhin was killed in July 2023. On February 16, prisoner, lawyer and politician Alexei Navalny died at the Polar Wolf penal colony in Harp, Russia. He was serving a 13-and-a-half-year sentence for multiple charges, and it is widely believed that Navalny was murdered by direct order from President Putin. The Federal Penitentiary Service, or FSIN, claimed that after going on a walk, Navalny reported he felt unwell, collapsed and died. Hours before his death, Navalny was in a video where he appeared thin but otherwise healthy, laughing and making no complaints about his health. We'll link to the video in our situation report. After his death, Navalny's mother traveled to Salihard to collect his body, but officials claimed that they didn't have it. Mediazona reviewed publicly available traffic cams that showed a convoy of 10 vehicles crossing the only bridge that leads to Salihard from Polo Wolf 10 hours after Navalny's death. On February 18, the Investigative Committee of Russia reported that Navalny's body would be held for 30 days, although its location remains unknown. Since 2017, Navalny suffered a chemical attack that left him blind in one eye and survived two assassination attempts that used the Russian nerve agent Novichok. After a conviction that added another 19 years to his prison sentence, he was transferred to Harp. In 2000, rockhound Richard W. Hughes described the town as, quote, a monochrome mixture of rust and concrete, a grey gulag of a town, whose major industries are cement and prisons." Unquote. Polar Wolf and the adjacent Polar Owl penal colony have a brutal reputation within the Fsin, and Navalny was repeatedly placed in solitary confinement. Attempts by Russians to honor Navalny were met with brutal repression, including hundreds of arrests, beatings and immediate jail sentences in 32 cities. In St. Petersburg, 52 were arrested, with 42 held in detention for participation in an unauthorized protest, and another 10 fined between 10,000 to 15,000 rubles. Russian Orthodox Church priest Grigory Mikhnovaitenka, who had organized a memorial service, was arrested as soon as he left his St. Petersburg home. After being taken into custody, his lawyer demanded an ambulance be called after seeing his condition. The priest is now in intensive care, with officials claiming he had a stroke while in custody. Moving to assessment. Navalny was a complex man. Privately, Russians saw him as a symbol of resistance and hope. Publicly, he aligned himself with nationalist and neo-Nazi organizations starting in the mid-2000s and was an outspoken critic of immigration. He supported the annexation of Crimea and much of the anti-Ukrainian rhetoric from the Kremlin. For Ukrainians and their supporters, Navalny may have been a political prisoner, but he did not deserve to be placed on a pedestal. Had he somehow found a path to survive and rise to power, his words indicated he would be a less corrupt version of a kinder President Putin. For Russians, who still had hope that political change was possible or a house might land on President Putin, the death of Navalny has been a profound event. For them, it represents the end of hope. 
After next month's elections, Russia will complete its slide into fascism, run by a dictator who embraces the worst qualities of Joseph Stalin and the Tsars. While Navalny was still alive, there seemed to be someone to look to as a beacon to lead Russia away from Putin. That light was snuffed out, and it was for this reason that Navalny's murder was inevitable. In a video that he made to be played upon his death, Navalny said, quote, Everything will be all right, and even if it won't be, we'll have the consolation of having lived honest lives. Unquote. In our war crimes and human rights section, we sometimes discuss atrocities, gender-based violence, torture, cruelty to animals, and human suffering. Today's section contains information that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. As previously discussed, Russian soldiers executed Ukrainian POWs in two incidents. After Russian forces captured the Zenit air defense station south of Avdiivka, they captured six Ukrainian soldiers, five who were unable to fight and a sixth who stayed behind to defend them. The six waited for evacuation for 36 hours and then started calling family members to say goodbye. When Russian forces arrived, they ordered the wounded to stand, saying they would not carry them out. Russian soldiers shared videos of the execution and aftermath. The soldiers were killed in garage one, with the floor covered in water and blood. The video is extremely graphic and very disturbing, but we have elected to share it due to the importance of documenting the crime. We link to the video in our situation report. There is information in the podcast description. North of Solidarnia Vesele, Russian troops shot two wounded Ukrainian prisoners. A Russian soldier fired twice on the pair as they lay on the ground in a trench outside of the village. We also link to the video. On February the 12th, in occupied Kherson Oblast, archpriest Stepan Podolchak of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine was removed from his home by Russian soldiers barefoot and with a bag over his head. Three days later, his wife was contacted to come to the morgue to retrieve his body. Insurgents are reporting that Russian troops tortured him to death after another priest wrote a denunciation for violating Russia's so-called Don't Say War laws. Over the last week, Russia attacked another three hospitals, including a direct strike on the maternity and pediatric ward in Selidova. The attack killed 35-year-old Natalia Stepanenko and her 9-year-old son Yaroslav Kamnev, who had been recently hospitalized. Russian sources justified the attack, claiming Ukrainian troops were being treated at the facility. A civilian hospital, even one treating wounded troops, has special status under international humanitarian law. Finally, I have geopolitics news, so we don't end the podcast discussing war crimes. The Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, said that Parliament would vote on Sweden's accession into NATO by the end of the month. The vote could come as early as February the 26th. A poll by the United States Pew Research Center found strong support for Ukraine among Americans. 74% see the ongoing war as important, with 43% saying it was very important. 59% reported that the war was personally important to them, 
six points below the Israel-Hamas war, but above a theoretical conflict between China and Taiwan. The poll also found that a majority of Republicans and independents who lean Republican see the war as an important issue, 69%. It also found that among young voters ages 18 to 29, 70% believe the ongoing war is important to national interests, an even higher result than the Israel-Hamas war. And that's what we know. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News.